begin by telling you a story. It's a parable. In 1871, there was a young girl named Babbitt whose husband and child had been murdered in France during a civil war, and as a result, she fled from uh, France to an island far away uh, where she ran into a group of uh, nuns who had, uh, were serving God, but had since lost their joy uh, in doing so. They were very quarrelsome and lived a very kind of austere, hard life. And Babette knocked on the door and asked if she could become their servant. And they received her, and she became part of their little community there that wasn't really filled with much happiness because they led such a, a difficult existence, eating, you know, very basic meals, stale bread, etc. And so she lived there for many, many years. But there was a cousin who every year would buy her a lottery ticket in Paris, and um, she would communicate with him. He was the only person she had contact with in the outside world. To make a long story short, she won the lottery, won 10,000 francs, and which in the 1800s was worth a million dollars or so. And, so she pondered what would she do with all that money, and she decided that she would throw a great feast for all of these uh, nuns who lived their life on this island in misery. And so she ordered all of these exotic foods like pheasant and squab and uh, quail and partridge and turtle and all these, the best pottery and utensils for the feast and the best of wines and pastries, and she had two huge ships come from France all the way down to this little island where she lived. And, and she ordered a feast. And it was supposed to be for the, on the, on the pretense that it would be for the 100th anniversary of their existence. Now, these uh, you know, nuns didn't want to come. You know, if they weren't into feasting and partying, they were just drudgily and draggily serving God. But they came you know, to kind of, it was the right thing to do. And so they kind of came with their long faces and laid out was this enormous feast. And uh, you know, uh, what do you call it? Um, serving after serving after serving after came, and finally they got loosened up, you know, as they were eating this delicious pheasant and turtle soup and wonderful wine from Paris and all of that. And, and as they began to eat and eat and eat, gradually they, they, the crack in their hardness uh, began to grow wider, and even almost against their will, they began to be overwhelmed by the wonder of this feast. And uh, they were drawn to the grace of it all. And uh, in fact, it was so enjoyable, it was more than they could endure. Uh, and actually began to smile and, uh, between each other. And somebody burped. And an elderly nun said, hallelujah. And, and then they began to recall how they, you know, in the past and began to forgive each other and just drink coffee together and... Before you know it, they, 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 they felt lighter than when they came in. They all went home and arm in arm and actually had a little skip to their step. Uh, but Babette's grace to them had just caught them totally off guard and had melted their resistance and made them feel like, wow, maybe we're not so undeserving after all. And they were even perhaps worthy of such a fine gift. And a joy trickled into the depths of their being. And so after the feast, one of the sisters then said to Babette, oh, I, you know, since you have so much money now, I guess you're going to go return back to France. And she said, oh, no. She goes, I, I don't have any money. I, I can't go back. They said, no money, but the 10,000 francs, she says, spent it all on the feast. But it's a great little story because that is what grace is supposed to do to us, to take us from being grouchy people eating stale bread, 
grumpy, critical, without a great deal of joy in our lives, and so overwhelm us that it actually cracks through our shells and sets us free. And uh, we're going to conclude this morning by the Lord's Supper, and that's what the Lord's Supper is supposed to do to us, overwhelm us. So probably we're so used to it, it doesn't, even, doesn't phase us. And that's my prayer for us this morning as we look at this text in John 11, and uh, it's a great text. In fact, today will just be part one of two parts. There's so much in it. I just want to bring out one, one point of a few that are in this text, but it's about the, the, the love of Christ, which is so matchless and so phenomenal and so manifold and so wealthy that, that it's like a diamond. You can just look at it from one angle and you get a glimpse of it and you get, you get to turn it around and another angle and, and we will spend eternity uh, glorying and meditating and wondering in this and the matchless love of Jesus and we will never grow tired. We will never exhaust it, but it will seep deep into our beings. And, and this miracle here in John 11 is the climax miracle of Jesus in the Gospel of John. It's his final miracle. It's, it's the, it's the um, climactic moment which drives the division with him and the religious leaders. But uh, it, it, this is the most powerful expression of this love of Jesus, I think, here as we look at this passage. So let's go to John 11. Let's just read a few verses here. And because uh, I want us to look at two things, the wisdom of the love of Jesus and then the power of the love of Jesus. And again, the message is simple, and my prayer is that we'll have an experience this morning of that love. Every one of us, regardless of where we are this morning, seeker, 20 years in Christ, you're cold as ice, grumpy, whatever you might be, but that you might be filled with joy. Let's begin reading verse 1 of chapter 11. It says... Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who had poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he had heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now go back down to verse 34. Now verse 33, verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews would come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. I will stop right here. So underline that phrase, Jesus wept. And the other one is in verse 3, which is, Lord, the one you love is sick. It's those two verses that I want to just expound on this morning and lead us to the table, all right? First, if you put the overhead up, uh, I want to talk to you about, as we're, we're in this little, I'm doing a little mini-series on the explosive power of the resurrection. Last week was the beginning, but I want to come at it from a different angle on this, this love of Jesus. And I want to, talk to you, begin by talking about the wisdom of, of Jesus' love, all right, which is found in verse 3. And where it says, the sisters come to Jesus and say, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, it's, oh, the one you love is sick, no big deal. It is a big deal. Because what it means is that people whom Jesus loves uh, get sick and have suffering and trouble. And that your life 
uh, may include sickness and difficulty and trouble, uh, sometimes even on to death. It happens to people who love Christ. Now, the reason Jesus says this happens is in verse 4. He goes, it's for God's glory, that God's Son may be glorified through it. In other words, he says, somehow in all of this, it's for the glory of God. He's saying, get rid of this simplistic notion that if you're a good person, you have a good life. If you're a bad person, you have a painful life. Because that's not the way it is. That was the problem in John chapter 9 when they had this man born blind. They said, ah, who sinned, him or his mother? He says, no, that's not what the suffering stuff is all about at all. But uh, if you look at Mary and Martha's life had been disrupted, been smashed with the sickness and the death of their uh, brother Lazarus. So the family's in turmoil here. And, and uh, because, you know, when things fall apart, it's God's way of getting our attention and getting us to listen on a whole new, deeper level. And he is seeking to bring Mary and Martha to a revelation of who he is and what life is all about as the resurrection and the life. But he does this by, in a sense, causing their life to crumble and fall apart and bring suffering into it. And and uh, look at your life. Isn't that how God often deals with you? Things fall apart. You end up in making a decision to let go of some things that you held as true. You end up in a time of confusion. What's going on here? And then God hopefully leads you to a place, a new place of new revelation, a new beginning, a new start. But the point is, if you belong to him, if you belong to Jesus Christ today, suffering does come into your life. And that he does that for your good and does some things in and through you as a result of it. You know that great verse we quote all the time, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Ah, it's very trite, Romans 8, 28. We throw it around, but God says, no, no, you don't understand. This is for, verse 4, God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Every event that happens in your life does not just have one purpose in it, or even two but has hundreds and hundreds of purposes in one single event. And then that single event that happened in your life, again, good or evil, then is related to all the other thousands of events that happen in your life, each of which has hundreds of purposes of God in it. And God weaves them all together. And he takes them to bring glory to him and then in and through you. Now you say, that, that, that's... That's the Bible's rich and sophisticated answer to this whole question of suffering and pain. In other words, Jesus says, it's for the glory of God. So many hundreds of purposes you can never even realize. And, and so you say, well, I don't know, Pete. I, I look at my life and my disappointments and tragedies, and I don't see much glory coming out of God for God in that. Maybe Lazarus, well, he got written up in a book, you know, got raised from the dead, miracle, but uh, mine seems pretty pointless. But you see, suffering... And disappointment and tragedy causes all of us to see our finiteness and our, how limited we are uh, like nothing else does. In fact, the problem is if you're very successful, everything's going great, you really think, I did this, my abilities, my intelligence, but it's when you lose them and you have trouble and disappointment that it breaks you out of the illusion that you're in control of your life. In other words, when you lose your job, when you lose a precious relationship, when you lose your health, when you lose your finances, or another part of your life that's so important to you, do you know what happens? Um, you, realize that you, never, you realize that you're not in control 
of your life. In fact, you realize, maybe I never had control of my life anyway, even when things were going good. And as, one of the, as the question was asked, this woman in the, midi, in the Middle Ages named Catherine supposedly had a discussion with Jesus in a dream. And she said, Jesus, why is there so much pain in life? Why is there so much suffering? And the Lord Jesus said to her, Catherine, if there was any other way, I would have thought of it already. But there's no other way to let go, for people to let go of their false beliefs, their false views, their egos, and be transformed into compassionate men and women. There is no other way. And so the choice that comes to all of us when we go through difficulties and trials and sufferings and disappointments is whether we're going to get harder or we're going to get more tender. And, you know, harder, I mean, you know, some of us, you know what it's like. Something bad happens to you, you know, and tragedy comes in your life and disappointment, and you get very angry, angry because you're angry and bitter and say, I, I, don't, I hate being this helpless and out of control with my life. And one becomes hard. Other people become more tender and more soft. Say, you know, I, you're right, I should not be playing like I'm God because I'm not God. I'm just a creature made in God's image, and he really is the Lord. And, um, you know, uh, you know I, I didn't make this life. And so, you know, suffering, one thing about suffering is it will, it will not let you remain where you are. Suffering either makes you harder or it makes you softer, but you cannot stay the same. Stay the same. And the interesting thing is the bigger the suffering, the bigger the opportunity. So some of you may have a cold today and a headache. Others of you may have a tumor. But the greater the suffering, the greater the opportunity to grow and be transformed. And uh, so the alternatives are, are more stark. And so some of you are in some big stuff today, big difficulties, big trials, big losses. And, uh, but at the same time, it's the greater opportunity for your soul to grow in God. But also some of you are in smaller ones, and maybe you could grow into a mean, narrow person, but it's smaller and slower. Now, which way are you going? Because you see in verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. Point is that it happens to all of us. There are no exceptions, and which way are you going with it? Because the wisdom of Jesus' love drives us one of two directions because it clashes with our understanding of how things should go. Now, some of you, if you can think of a picture of a doctor operating, a surgeon on a, on a patient that's maybe his or her spouse or a good friend, it's going to take great care and precision in making those cuts. In the same way, so God with you. Now, if you look at Mary and Martha how they handle the difficulty or this reality of the wisdom of Jesus' love because the wisdom of Jesus' love includes loss, suffering, disappointment, and tragedy. It's his way of causing us to let go and to grab onto a new reality. And so go down for a minute. I want you to see two things that Mary and Martha do because they respond in a positive way because I want to invite you to respond well today, too. First thing they do is, that Mary and Martha, they pray. And in verse 3, they send a message to Jesus. Lord, you're, you know, the one you love is sick. And uh, it's not their last resort. Like most of us, you know, things are going bad, and we try everything, and finally, okay, that didn't work. Let me check out God. But the first thing they do is they pray. They, they bring it to God. Now, again, prayer is the essence of what, you know, just learning to pray and growing in prayer, that great mystery. We, we spend our whole lives learning about prayer. But um, they say, Lord, the one you love. They don't say, Lord, Lazarus, you know, the one who obeyed you well, the one who had a quiet time two hours a day, the one who memorized those verses well, 
Lord, that Lazarus, you know, the one who attended every meeting where you spoke in our hometown. No, they don't say that. They don't say, Lord, based on the way he did it. He had a great Christian life. You ever pray for somebody say, Lord, you know they're good. Now bless them. You ever pray that? That's not gospel praying. Okay? But they say, Lord, no, the one that you love. In other words, it's based on the gospel. They understand that uh, in order for us to come before God, uh, requirements of the law must be met, and none of us have met those requirements. And we deserve punishment and death for those for not meeting God's law's requirements as a holy God. And, and the gospel is that Jesus has met them. He, he lived that perfect life on our behalf. And, and he fulfilled all the requirements that we need to meet so we could be acceptable to God. Jesus did it. That's the heart of the gospel. And he went to death and he bore our punishment and he rose again and he's alive. And the gospel is as we receive his forgiveness, we, we take that gift as our own, then all the love that Jesus earned by his perfect life is given to us. And we become adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. We receive his spirit, and we're able to come into God's presence freely by his grace. That's the great news of the gospel. And that's how they pray. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. In other words, Lord, you've set your love on Lazarus. Lord, you've set your love on so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. It's based on your faithfulness, not his obedience. And it's a wonderful, wonderful way to pray. Many of us are insecure when we pray because we, we think it's based on how we're doing whether we had a good day or bad day in God, and so we're very insecure, we're not bold, we're afraid. And that's why many of us, when things happen that are bad, a tragedy strikes, we feel like God's punishing us. He's not a father who's disciplining us and refining us for our good. Uh, but they pray on the basis of the sure love of Jesus for Lazarus. Now look at verse 4. I love this. It says, G verse 5, I'm sorry. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now move on. They prayed, and secondly, they waited. Because resting in the wisdom of Jesus' love includes I'm praying, surrendering, and I'm also in a waiting mode, in attitude and in action. Let me explain this for a minute. In verse 6 is a very important verse. It doesn't come out as clear in the NIV version of the Bible, but it's a little clearer in some others, where it says, when Jesus learned that he was sick and Jesus knew he was dying, it says, and it says in verse 5, it repeats, he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He loved them. Yet, and the word in Greek really is, therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed two more days. In other words, he didn't move. He delays. And Lazarus, as you know, gets sick and he dies. Well, there's a it's supposed to shock you that what is he doing waiting and letting this, things get worse and Lazarus dies if he loves them so much? And it's meant to shock you and startle you. And, and in other words, Jesus delays to the point where it's absolutely impossible that Jesus could fulfill his promise of being the resurrection and the life. Do you ever find that he delays moving in your life until it's like everything's shot. Until it's impossible that he'll ever do anything. And if I was Mary and Martha, or if you were Mary and Martha, you know what many of us would have done? We would have come to Jesus and said, you know, after, now he shows up, all right, four days later, Lazarus is buried. We would have ran up to Jesus as Mary and Martha and says, Jesus, you're a liar. Where's your promises? You're a promise breaker. You're a heartbreaker. Why did I get involved with you? And we would, have, we would have yelled frustrated. 
And, uh, but they, they refused to, in a sense, demand or question the love of Jesus and what he was doing, the wisdom of his love and what was going on, because they couldn't see it all. And, uh, you know, we sit down back and say, oh, Lord, you say, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added on to you. We know all those promises. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. If God be for us, who can be against us? We have all these promises. We say, well, God, well, then where's that spouse you promised me? And where's, where's the money? And, and, and that new job? And, 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 and that breakthrough at work? And, and we go on and on. And why, why isn't my family a Christian yet? And what happens, we look at our circumstances and we say, hmm, and we judge the love of Jesus based on our circumstances rather than looking at our circumstances through the love of Jesus. It's very different. We can judge our circumstances and look at them, and then we make a judgment about the love of Jesus. Uh, he's not loving. He's not good. He doesn't care about me based on circumstances. He says, no, 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 no. The wisdom of my love for you is such, you don't do that. But rather, you look at your circumstances through my love for you. Why was I born in this family? What am I doing here in New York? Why'd that happen to me? Why, don't, why aren't I brilliant like so-and-so? Why aren't I a phenomenal musician or actor? Why, why hasn't that break come to me? And, and, and why, 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 why? And so I, I take it all and I say, God, somehow, even through the mess, your love, Lord, help me to see your love and the wisdom of your love through it. And Mary and Martha say, both of them say, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And their attitude is one of, of, of waiting. And so I need to discipline myself to do that just like they do. But there's something else. They wait, go down a little bit more. They wait in action. And uh, some of us think we wait in attitude. We just don't wait in action. I'm talking about obedience. They stick with Jesus as things get worse. And then in verse 39, Jesus says to them, move the stone. And, you know, they do move the stone. See, some of us like the idea of attitudinally we'll wait, but we're not going to obey because this isn't, this isn't working out. You know, Pete, I know the Bible says no sex before marriage, but hey, you know, I don't know. We'll ever get married. We'll ever have a relationship. I'll lose this relationship. And, but waiting is to, is to obey even though I can't see it. Or, Lord, I, I know you, you say you want me to give, you want me to serve, you want me to love. What about me, my needs? You know, hey. And we say, I don't want to wait. I got to take care of number one. Or, you know, Lord, I know you call me to be tender and to be soft and to be forgiving. And, but you know, Lord, when I was on a train going up to 51st in Lexington last week, this lady bumped me, man. I bumped me, just ran right into me. I wanted to strangle her. And, you know, this softness and tenderness thing, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Lord, speak the truth and to have integrity. Lord, that, that's expensive. Do you know the tax code of this country? Do you know how expensive it is relationally? Oh, I know the Bible says speak for you not to be ashamed. And, but Lord, you know, they're going to think I'm a nut and indirectly it'll ruin my witness for you. And so, no, I will not obey you. I'm not going to say, yes, I'm one of those Christians and take your name and all that goes with that that people think and... The, the scariness, but to wait for Mary and Martha is they obey. But waiting, friends, very specifically is an attitude, but it's also an obedience and, um, of trusting in the wisdom of his love. But listen, some of you, there's stuff going on in your life right now, you don't know what's going on. They didn't know what was going on. He was tearing things apart with his jackhammer so that he could lead them into some confusion and bring them to a new place.
hear this, the way the Lord brings us to that new place is first things fall apart. And that's what he did to Mary and Martha here. I know, I know, I know. He didn't come to hear that. It's called the spirituality of descending. And he does that to Mary and Martha. Now, there's one other thing that happens here, which is in verse 35. Go to point two. There's the wisdom of Jesus' love. But this really is what, this, this verse killed me. In verse 35, when Jesus weeps. I say, oh, yeah, Jesus wept. I know, I know. Shortest verse in the Bible. I memorized the verse. Some of you are thinking, you know, all that joke that goes around, you know. Now, this is God. This is, this is, this is chapter 1 of John, the Word made flesh, God in human form, walking the earth. He comes up to the grave. He's got a huge crowd there. Now, if I was Jesus, I would have said, all right, watch this. Ha! Come forth. You know, we would have, we would have done something powerful or majestic and, you know, show all those unbelieving people. That he's got it. And he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It wasn't like he didn't know. And, uh, but he doesn't do that. Wait till you see this. He weeps. That weeping is to bowl you over and to me over. It's, 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 it should shock you. As much as he loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, and then he lets things fall apart. That should shock you too. But the power of him weeping... In other words, Jesus has so knit his heart with those whom he loves that when you are in pain, he weeps. That when you are stuck in bondage, in death, in decay, in lostness, in wandering, he weeps. Some of you are parents here, and I've not been a parent that long, but I have tasted what I've heard is true, that once you're a parent, that there's like a chain stuck on your heart now with these kids. And that no matter, if those ch child, children go wayward, as much as you try to avoid it, it's like a chain in your heart. It just pulls you. And your happiness is wrapped up to some degree the rest of your life with those children. Well, that's on a human scale. But God does say that about himself with us those whom he loves, that there's a chain on the heart of God that when you grieve, he grieves. That he looks at you behind that stone, stuck, and he weeps. And the power of his love that, it, that released all his explosive resurrection power, he wants to understand this is not just TNT playing with magic power. This is the God of the universe and how he feels about those whom he loves. And verse 35, he weeps. That's why they say, oh, see how he loved him. They don't understand the, the, the first, first ounce of what that love's about. See, he loves you more than any spouse has ever loved you or could ever love you. He loves you more than any parent has ever loved you or ever could love you. Any friend has or ever will. Anyone ever in the universe has loved you. He is, that's only a speck of his love towards you. Now think, friends, the God of the galaxies who rules in all the heavens, the tens of billions of miles of this huge galaxy, we're specks in the universe, and yet, when we hurt, it creates grief in him. Listen, I don't know if you've studied world religion. Some of you have in the university. I mean, no, no other mythology or any other world religions ever thought of such a crazy thing about God. That he weep over people. How weak. 
How weak. In Hosea 11, God says about Israel, his people, he goes, how my compassion is aroused within me. He goes, basically, my heart's breaking over you. You're, it's, it's giving me heart failure. It's, it's turning my stomach the way you're moving away from me. And, and in, in Psalm 56, God says, I take your tears and I've got them in a bottle. I mean, I know your pain and your grief better than you do. And I write it on a scroll. I've got it in a bottle. And I mean, just think how you came in here today. Did you look around and say, hmm, let me... There's grief. What, what are people carrying here today? What tears have they stored up in a bottle? That I, now, most of us came in saying, hmm, how do I feel? How will I feel when I leave? But you think how differently we treat each other than the way God treats us. It's, um, it's, it's a great little point, but you only weep over things that are valuable to you. You know, if I lose my wallet with my credit cards, I'm weeping. I'm screaming, but I'm also weeping lose my ring, a watch, whatever. What's, what's your treasured possession that means a lot to you? Your car gets stolen. Well, the Bible says in Exodus 19, God says, you are my treasured possession. And he has a lot of feelings about his treasure. And I love, I just love verse 35. He weeps. You know, it's been said over and over again by mental health professionals that the number one problem in, in America is, is people feel so worthless they feel like they're nothing. Well, I don't know where you are with that, but I mean, just think of Jesus, God in human flesh, face to face with your life, and he weeps over you. What, you. what he wants for your life and the very pain that you're in as well. Well, you know, Isaiah, when he was touched by the love of Jesus in Isaiah 6, if you remember, a coal, an angel came with a coal and forgave him of his sins. And then the Lord said, okay, who wants to go for me? And go preach to people who are never going to listen for the rest of your life. I'll go! In other words, people who have been touched by the power of his love are crazy. They'll do anything. I'll go it! I'll go! That's what happened to the apostles. Anything you want! Imagine 12 people who have really been touched with the power of his love in the depths of their beings. They'll be crazy. They'll do wild things. They'll take huge risks. Anything you want, God! The motivation is like they've tasted of a feast and they're just, like Babbitt, they're overjoyed. Well, you know, behold, you've heard this phrase, behold how he loves you. It's a command. Behold how he loves you. And let that melt you and turn you to repent and say, when he says to you, I love verse, verse uh, 30, verse 40. Did I not tell you, Jesus says, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? For those who believe, when he says, verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. And he says to you, Joe, Michael, Susie. Surely, come forth. If you believe, I tell you, you'll see the glory of God. You'll experience the glory of God. How's transformation come? It comes by, you know something? We let go of our need to be in control. We let go of our false gods. We let go of our illusions. We let go of our anger, our rage, our bitterness, all of our great ideas of how God should run the universe. We let it go. And our need to be right, and then we open ourselves up 
to, I know it's frightening, to a whole new beginning, to a new level, a new place of where he wants to take us. So take your name in verse 43, where he says, Lazarus, come forth. Jesus calls out in a loud voice and put your name in there. Joe, come out! And the power of his strong love, if you'll just move, let the stone be moved, move the stone, and let that power come rushing into you of his love and let it set you ablaze and set you on fire and fill you with life and fill you with joy and you'll never be the same. And even though you're crabby and critical like those nuns on that island with Babbitt, such a feast will overwhelm you and you'll say to yourself, how'd that happen? It'll have been the wisdom and the power of his love moving through your life. I love the expression, like a freight train. We're going to take the Lord's Supper, and we're going to do it because it's, a, it's our feast together. And every family has rituals. This is the family of God around the world celebrates the Lord's Supper. And it's something that we don't give to God. It's something he gives to us. If you look at the, all the accounts of the Lord's Supper, they receive. Even Judas is there, and he receives. Now, he doesn't repent, which is a problem. Because you're supposed to be coming to the table repentant turning away from your, running your own life and letting go of that and surrendering to him and receiving of his love. It's a gift of bread. It's a gift, gift of his blood, his life to you. And it's meant to be received. That's why there's two things that go on at a, at, a, at a Lord's Supper. One, it's an altar call to receive Jesus Christ and become a Christian. And secondly, it's an atmosphere of worship as Jesus is here and offers us the meal of himself. And it's meant to be an experiential feel. And I'm using the word feel. It's funny how so many times on Sunday we feel numb to God. Because there's such a warfare that goes on, I believe, around Sundays. But it's meant to be a feel of the power of his love. So I want you to meditate on it. He wept. And see yourself. And he calls you forth. And so I'm going to invite the ushers forward. I want us to pray. And uh, then we're going to distribute the elements. And I just want to pray right now before we even begin. Um, I want you to close your eyes for just a moment. And maybe you're coming here right now towards this table. And you've been angry and bitter. And rather than trusting in the wisdom of his love, you've grown uh, angry and harder and wandered. And rather than change you for good, you've allowed it to make you harder. So let's, you, right now, just repent to the Lord. Say, Lord, forgive me of my sin of wandering. Father, cleanse me. And maybe you want to receive Christ for the first time. You say, I'm not even sure I'm a Christian, Pete. Well, you want to say, Lord, I want to make sure right now. I know I don't deserve to come to the table. Who does? But Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Lord, it's hard to receive such a love. But I do believe you died on the cross for my sins, and that was enough. I don't need to die for them because you did. Thank you. Receive me. Lord, make me your son and make me your daughter. Just pray that simple prayer right now, and then you come to the table. And Father, we, all of us, we have no right to come to this table except 
on the righteousness of Jesus, based on Jesus. And thank you, Lord, we're all equal before you. None of us is better or superior. None of us is inferior. But, Lord, as you command us, behold my love for you. Lord, open up our eyes as we worship and sing of the power of your love and melt us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's all stand.